Welcome to another episode of Dark and, and Creepy things. things with Frank and Scout. Yay. Okay, it's my what, turn. What have we got today, Frank? Um, this is an article actually suggested by Francis. One of our patrons. Yeah. Yes, let's thank our patrons. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Francis. Thank and you. thank you, Bitten by the Bug. Yes, if you want to suggest an article, feel free to donate to our patron. Patreon account. Account, and yeah. then you can suggest an article. Yeah. So this article was suggested by Francis. It is called Behavior Altering Parasites. Oh. Yeah. What? Yes. It's a thing. Yeah. Um, this is more of a scientific one, but it's of still course, creepy. It's, it's your. It's me. <laughs> it's your it's episode. Your turn. Um, okay. So. But it's also, I mean, Francis and I are both very scientifically minded, so yeah. I can kind of understand why Francis would suggest this. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, so behavior-altering parasites are parasites with two or more hosts capable of causing changes in the behavior of one of their hosts to facilitate their transmission, sometimes directly affecting the host decision-making and behavior control mechanisms. They, they do this by making the intermediate host, where they may reproduce asexually, more likely to be eaten by a predator at a higher trophic level which becomes the definitive host where the parasite produces sexually. Hmm. The mechanism is therefore sometimes called as parasite increased trophic facilitation or parasite increased trophic transmission. Examples can be found in bacteria, protozoa, viruses and animals. Okay. Yeah. So translation. Paras- yeah, I was going to say this is sounding much science. Much science. Uh, but so, yeah, so when parasites do stuff normally they have two hosts they'll have a host where they build up like bigger numbers via asexual usually an asexual way so what that means is they they clone themselves they don't they don't use another another set of dna they just clone themselves and then that'll be transmitted to another host where they then sexually um Reproduce, so they might need a male and a female to do that. They might be hermaphroditic, which means they have both yep. sets of uh, sexual organs, so yep. they can do it themselves. Um, so, and then what they do, they do that to go from a smaller host to a bigger host. So, for example, from for a human example, mm-hmm. is that we, if you have cats in your house, mm-hmm. we are usually um, hosted by a parasite called, I forget what it's called. It starts with T. I can't remember what it's called. But the host uses us, the parasite uses us to give it to cats and vice versa. So there is an argument to say that the parasite actually influences us to be closer to cats so that they can get to the cats, if that makes sense. So it's a parasite in cats? And in humans too, but it affects the cats more than us, if that makes sense. But the traditional host, we're like a coincidental one and it, it's transmitted oh, through feces. that's the one yeah. toxoplasmosis yeah. so it's transmitted traditionally through rats so rats have it and it influences the rats to get close to the cats so the so the cats eat them and the parasites then transmitted further yeah so the parasite that causes it to- toxo toxoplasma gondii is that yep. right yeah that's yeah. the one it's carried by nearly 30% of all humans i'm pretty sure we're those humans yeah if you yeah. Cut, touch cat feces you are you have it yeah, and it's in most cases relatively harmless. Um, yeah, I remember we were a bit worried about that when I was going through like 
hospitals on chemotherapy drugs mm-hmm. and stuff. But then we kind of decided, well, and I think my doctor suggested too, I've probably got it anyway because yeah. um, I've lived with cats for a bit and we have four of them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, and also as well <laughs> they then recommend pregnant women don't, or yes. pregnant people don't touch cat exactly. feces for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, cats carry other stuff too because they're animals. Is that more so, so what if you're a pregnant person and you already have that parasite in you, is that going to affect your baby or is it more so that if you then get in contact with that parasite again in, some, in the cat poo that it can affect the baby or? It probably would be depending on the load. So if you've already got it mm. and it's sort of living dormant in you, it probably won't affect the baby. Okay. But if you get a bigger load of it, right. like if you get yeah. reinfected, yes. it might have a, a different effect but yeah. i'm not entirely sure okay. okay so let me go on mm, parasite mm, parasites among the behavioral changes caused by parasites is carelessness making their host easier prey Toxoplasmosa gondii, for example, infects small rodents and causes them to become careless and attracted to the smell of feline urine, which increases the risk of predation and the parasite's chance of infecting the cat, its definitive host. So that's what we were just talking about. So what can't what? So the rats have the parasite. The yeah. parasite then makes the rats careless and attracts the rats to cat ah, urine. Okay, so you. then the rats go near the cat urine yeah. and then the cats eat them. So then the parasite ah, goes into the cats. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. So careless. Yeah, careless. Yeah. Parasites may alter the host behavior by infecting the central nervous system or by altering neurochemical communication. So I'm not going to go into the types, but I'm going to give you examples. So viruses. Viruses from the family Baculoviridae induce their host changes in both feeding behaviour and environment selection. They infect moth and butterfly caterpillars who, sometime following infection, begin to eat incessantly, mm-hmm. providing nutrients for the virus's replication. When the virions, or the virus unit, unit, units, <laughs> are ready to leave the host, the caterpillar climbs higher and higher until its cells are made to secrete enzymes which dissolve the animal into goo, oh, what? raining down the clumps of tissue and viral material for ingestion by future hosts. Louis, don't listen. <laughs> He's very scared. We have a, a black cat, Louis, um, my number one son, sitting on on my lap at the moment yeah. while we're recording this um, in our bedroom because it's quieter than in the living room and yeah Louis looks very concerned yeah. we're not going to let you get turned into a pile of goo buddy well okay. he's not a moth and he's not a butterfly <laughs> so it's okay oh, he's, look at his face. he's not a caterpillar so he's not going to get infected by the virus he's a bit concerned but it's interesting that the virus makes them eat just eat mm. and eat and eat and eat and eat yes. and then climb high and then dissolve yeah <laughs> yeah the protozoan Taxomoplosa gondii infects animals from the Philidae family, its definitive hosts, and its oocytes are shed in the host's feces. Mm. So cats' feces yeah. hold the little oocytes. Oocysts. When a rodent can, consumes the fecal matter, it is infected with the parasite, becoming the intermediate host. The rodent subsequently becomes more extroverted and less fearful of cats, increasing really? yep, increasing its chance of predation. Is that the careless thing? Yep. And the parasite's chance of completing its life cycle. There is some evidence that T. gondi, when infecting humans, alters their behaviour in a similar way to rodents. And it has also been linked to cases of schizophrenia. 
Really? Apparently. Huh. Other parasites that cause this risk of that increase their host's risk of predation include many other scientific names I'm not going to try to pronounce. <laughs> so if you're interested, go to the Wikipedia page. Um, these which are... we'll post the link in, in the episode description. Yes. Of course. So these are protozoans, which are like halfway between bacteria and animals. Right, yeah. So they're single-celled, but they, they're more like animals than bacteria are, if mm. that makes any sense. Yes, yeah. Slightly. It makes mm. sense. The, pla- the malaria parasite, Plasmodium falciparum, carried by the... Anfo- Plasmodium! Plasmodium. <laughs> That's a cool name. Yeah. Plasmodium. Anopheles mosquito changes its host attraction to sources of nectar in order to increase its sugar take intake and enhance the parasite's chance of survival. Okay. It also decreases the host attraction to human blood while gestating, only to Ooh. increase when it is ready to transmit to a human host. So, essentially what the parasite does is say to the mosquito, you need to drink a shitload of sugar so that I can get enough energy to replicate, wow. and you can't go near humans until I'm ready. Huh. Okay, I'm ready now. Go find the humans. <laughs> wow. So it's, yeah. It's very clever. Yeah. Okay, so in the next category is belly helmets. So helmets are a class of animal that essentially mean worms. Okay. Yeah. So like annelid worms or nematode worms. Making the host careless increases the risk of being eaten by a non-host predator, interrupting the life cycle. Some parasites manipulate their intermediate host to reduce this risk. For example, the parasitic trematode Macrophallus uses a snail as an intermediate host. The parasite manipulates the snail's foraging behaviour to increase its chance of being preyed by its definitive host, waterfowl. The infected snail forages on the upper side of rocks during the period of day when the waterfowl feed most intensely. During the rest of the day, the snail feed forages at the bottom of the rocks to reduce the risk of being eaten by fish. Hmm. So it doesn't want to be eaten by fish, it wants to be eaten by birds. So when the birds are out, it puts itself out that it'll be eaten by the birds. Okay. And when the birds are not out, it puts itself away so it doesn't get eaten by the fish. Hmm. Hmm. That's very clever. Yeah. Lancet liver fluke is a parasitic trematode with a complex life cycle. In its adult state, it occurs in the liver of its definitive host, ruminants. So ruminants are animals that ferment food in their stomachs. So cows. Okay, yep. Yep. Yep, yep I've heard of that. Yep. yep, where it reproduces in yep. the liver of its definitive host. The parasitic eggs are then passed in the feces of the host, which are then eaten by a snail. The fluke matures into a juvenile stage in the snail, which then attempts to protect itself. It secretes parasites in slime balls. The slime balls are then consumed by ants. The fluke manipulates the ant to move up to the top of the grass where they have a higher chance of being eaten by the grazing ruminants. Mm. So it manipulates the ants to go up to the grass so that the cows will eat it. Right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. The parasitic nematode, scientific name I'm not going to try to pronounce, <laughs> if infects the parasitic, the intermediate ant host, again, another name I'm not going to try to pronounce. The nematode then induces a morphological change in the ant, which turns the colour from black to red, making it Ooh. resemble fruit. The colour transition makes the ant susceptible to predation by frugiferous birds, so birds that eat fruit. Yeah. The parasitic eggs are then deposited in the bird's feces and eaten by the ants, which completes the life cycle. So it makes the ants turn red so that the birds will eat it. Wait, I've seen red ants. Yeah, but they might not necessarily be those ants. Fire ants are red. 
Yeah. Yeah. Red crickets infected by horsehair worms exhibit. What? Yeah, horsehair worms. Okay. Exhibit light seeking behavior and increased walking speed, leading them to open spaces and ponds, the surface of which reflects moonlight. The crickets will eventually find and enter a body of water where the worm will wiggle out of the cricket's abdomen and swim away. While crickets often drown in the process, those who survive exhibit a partial recovery and return to normal activities in as little as 20 hours. Wow. Yeah, so the parasite says go to the water, it crawls out of the cricket, and if the cricket survive, it goes back to normal. (laughs) Okay. Wow. The trematode a name I'm not going to try to pronounce, matures inside snails of the genus Sakina. When ready to switch to its definitive host, the b- a bird, the parasite travels... Burb. The parasite travels to the eye stalks of its host and begins to pulsate, attracting birds with its striking resemblance to an insect larva. This also influences the normally nocturnal snail to climb out into the open during the day for an increased chance of being consumed by a bird. Uh, A parasitic tapeworm with three different hosts, two intermediate and one definitive. In its adult stage, the tapeworm resides in the insect's intestine of Piscivorous birds, birds that eat fish. Mm where they reproduce and release eggs through the bird species. Free-swimming larvae hatch from the eggs, which are then ingested by copedipods. I'm not sure what they are. Um, Copedipods. What does Wikipedia say about copedipods? A group of crustaceans. A very small group of crustaceans. They're like little little krill things. Okay. Would that be like sea monkeys? I think so. They'll yeah. probably be related, yeah. very closely related. Okay. The parasite host grows and develops in the crustacean into a stage that can infect the second host, the three-spined stickleback. The parasite's definitive host, a bird, then consumes the three-spined stickleback and the cycle is complete. It has been observed that this tapeworm alters the behaviour of the fish in a manner that impedes its escape response when faced with a predatorial bird. The parasite-induced behavioural manipulation effectively increases the chance of it being consumed by the bird host. It also has been observed that the parasite does not induce this behaviour until it has reached a stage that can survive in the bird, and therefore effectively reducing its own mortality rate. Hmm. Okay, so moving on to insects. The emerald cockroach wasp parasites its host, the American cockroach, as a food source for its growing larvae. The wasp stings the cockroach twice. First in the thoracic ganglion, (laughs) paralyzing the front legs and enabling the wasp to deliver a second more difficult sting directly into the cockroach's brain. The second sting makes the cockroach groom itself excessively before sinking into a state of hypokinesia a lethargy characterized by a lack of spontaneous movement or response to external stimuli. Hmm. The wasp then pulls the idle cockroach into its burrow where it deposits an egg onto its abdomen and buries it for the growing larvae to feed on. These things are creepy. Yeah. (laughs) Why are they so creepy? Yeah. Keeping the cockroach in a hypokinetic state at this stage rather than killing it allows it to stay fresh for longer for the larvae to ki- to feed on. What? So it essentially puts it into like a coma yeah. for its babies to eat. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> the adult wasp emerges after six weeks, leaving behind nothing but an empty cockroach shell. Yeah. Yeah. 
Another parasitic wasp grows its larvae on spiders of the species Lecugue argara. Shortly after killing its host, the larva injects it with a chemical that changes its weaving behavior, causing it to weave a strong cocoon-like structure. The larva then kills the spider and enters the cocoon to pupate, so it essentially gets a spider to make its house for it <laughs> when it's dead. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> The wasp Dinocampus coccinelle both, is both an endoparasite and an ectoparasite of ladybugs. So endo means in, ecto means out. Yes. So yes. for humans, an ectoparasite would be like lice, and yep. an endoparasite would be worms. Yep, 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 yep. The wasp injects an egg into the bug's abdomen, where the larvae feeds on its hemolyph, which is essentially their blood. Hmm. When grown and ready to pupate, the larvae exits its host, which remains immobile, and weaves a cocoon on its underside, where it pupates. Were a predator to approach, the bug would thrash its limbs, scaring the predator off. A week later, the grown wasp emerges from its cocoon, and most of the ladybugs die at that point. Another parasite, I'm not sure what kind of parasite it is, but it can cause their ant hosts to linger on the tips of grass leaves, increasing the chance of it being fouled by the parasite males, in case of females, and putting it in a good position for male emergence in the case of males. So it puts the host on the tips of the grass leaves so that they can pre- they can have sexual reproduction. Mm. A similar but much more intricate behaviour is established exhibited by ants infected with a fungus. Irregularly Tasty. Ti- yes. Irregularly timed body convulsions cause the ant to drop to the forest floor, mm. from which it climbs a plant up to a certain height before locking its jaws into the vein of one of its leaves and answering certain criteria of direction, temperature, and humidity. After several days, the fruiting body body of the fungus grows from the ant's head and ruptures, releasing fungal spores. Several species of the fly in the Foridae family parasite fire ants. The fly injects an egg into the ant's thorax. Upon hatching, the larva migrates to the ant's head where it feeds on the ant's hemolyph, muscle, and nerve tissue. During this period, some larvae direct the ant up to 50 metres away from the nest and towards a moist, leafy place where they can hatch... Moist. ...where they can hatch safely. Eventually, the larva completely devours the ant's brain, which often falls off... (laughs) Hence, the brain falls off. The brain falls oh, off. Wow. Hence the species nickname decapitating fly. Yeah. The larva then pupates in the empty head capsule, emerging as an adult fly after two weeks. I think I like that word. Pupates. 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 Yeah, so essentially these parasites do stuff to make them transmit themselves from host to host. Because that's what parasites do. Their entire life cycle is trying to get from one host to the next. Hmm. That's their entire life. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to see that a lot of them are about trying to get them close to the host. And I found it really cool that some of them were like, I don't want to be eaten by that host. Yeah. So I'm going to work out a way so that I don't I get eaten yeah, by that one. It's, it's so um, clever. Yeah. Really clever. It's pretty selective. And kind of manipulative. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to be eaten by that one. I'm going yeah. to be eaten by this one. So yeah. I will change my form and do things to attract the other thing. Mm. Mm. So 
it's got another paragraph, it's only a couple of paragraphs, so I'll read it, about mm. the evolutionary perspective. Oh, which of course interests you. Yeah, I'm an evolutionary geneticist. Yeah. I did a genetics major, so <laughs> I love evolutionary genetics, it's fascinating. Narrative art. Yes. <laughs> For complex life cycles to emerge in parasites, the addition of intermediate host species must be beneficial. Mm. So they must get some benefit out of it. Yeah. It is probable that most parasites with complex life cycles evolved from simple life cycles. The transfer from simple to complex has been analysed theoretically, and it has been shown that transmitted parasites can be favoured by the addition of an intermediate prey host if the population density of the intermediate host is higher than that of the definitive host. Additional factors that catalyze this transfer are high predation and low mortality rate of the intermediate host. So in other words, if your definitive host, the one where your life cycle ends, mm. is quite rare, using an intermediate host that's quite common and getting that intermediate host closer to the definitive host is beneficial rather than right. just trying to get to the definitive host by itself. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, a little bit. Parasites with a single host are faced with the problem of not being able to survive in higher trophic levels and therefore dying in its prey host. The development of a complex life cycle is most likely an adaptation of the parasite to survive in the predator. The development of a parasite increased trophic transmission is a further adaptation in relation to a complex life cycle where the parasite increases its transmission to a definitive host by manipulating the intermediate host. Mm. So there's a bit about mechanisms. The way in which parasites induce behavioural changes in a host has been compared to the way a neurobiologist would would affect a similar change in the lab. Hmm. A scientist may stimulate a certain pathway in order to produce a specific behaviour, such as increased appetite or lowered anxiety. Parasites also produce specific behavioural changes in their host, but rather than stimulate specific neurological pathways, they appear to target broader areas of the central nervous system. Two mechanisms used by parasites to alter behaviour in vertebrate hosts have been identified. Infection of the central nervous system and altered neurochemical communication. Infection of the central nervous system. Some parasites alter host behaviour by infecting neurons in the central nervous system. The host central nervous system responds to the parasite as it would to any other infection. Mm. The hallmarks include local inflammation and the release of chemicals such as cytokines. The immune response itself is responsible for induced behavioural changes in many of the cases of parasite infection. Parasites that are known to induce behavioural changes through central nervous system include toxoplasmosis in rats and trypanosoma cruzi in mice and plasmodium mexicanum in the Mexican lizard. While some parasites exploit their host typical immune response, others seem to alter the immune response itself. For example, the typical immune response in rodents is targeted by, sorry, is characterized by heightened anxiety. Infection with toxoplasmosis inhibits this response, increasing the risk of predation in the subsequent hosts. Research suggests that the inhibited anxiety response could be the result of an immunological damage to the limbic system. Mm. So in other words, rats, when they're infected by something, are usually more anxious and they don't go near predators, Mm. but Toxo does the opposite. Right, because it makes them kill. Yes. Yeah. Learning. I'm learning things. You're learning things. Yay. Altered neurochemical communication. 
Parasites that induce behavioural changes in the host often exploit the regulation of social behaviour in the brain. It is regulated by neurotransmitters such as dopamine and serotonin in the emotional centres of the brain, primarily the amygdala and the hypothalamus. Although parasites may be able to capable of stimulating specific neurochemical pathways to induce behavioural changes, evidence suggests they alter the communication through broad rather than specific targeting. For example, toxo attaches to the hypothalamus rather than a specific pathway. This broad targeting leads to a widespread increase in host dopamine, which may in turn account for the loss of the cat aversion, aversion to cat odour. So it targets the one one part of the brain, not like a single neuron. Wow. Yeah. In some cases, it is believed in, to cause increases in dopamine levels by secreting another compound. L-dopa, which may L-dopa, which may trigger a rise in dopamine levels, though concrete evidence has not been demonstrated. The rise in dopamine induces a loss of aversion to cat odor in the rats, increasing the predation by cats. The mechanism details underlying the release of dopamine in a way it affects remains elusive. Mm. Mm. The emerald cockroach wasp alters behavior through the injection of venom directly into the host's brain, causing hypokinesia. This is achieved by a reduction in dopamine and octopamine. I've never heard of that one. Hmm, Octopamine. I don't think I have either. Which affects the transmission of interneurons involved in the escape response. Hmm. So while the host brain circuitry responsible for movement is still functional, and indeed it will slog along when pulled by the wasp, the nervous system is in a depressed state. Put differently, the wasp toxin does not affect the host's ability to move, but its motivation to do so. Hmm. So in other words, you've been stung by something, you don't want to move anymore, so you just let it drag you along. Oh my god. <laughs> and you know in everything that's going on, you just don't want to say no. Wow. The original function of such secretions may have been to suppress the immune system of the host, as described above. The atrematode secretes opioid peptides into the host's bloodstream, influencing both its immune response and neural function. Um, other mechanisms include something by a nematode that infects insects residing in their circulatory cavity and manipulating their hemolymph osmolarity in order to trigger water-seeking behaviour. The exact means by which they do this is unknown. Hmm. So it makes their blood less watery, so then they go, I need to drink, mm-hmm. so then they go find water. But the way that they do that, they don't actually know. Mm. 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 Yeah, that's the end of the article. <laughs> that's but creepy. Yeah, yeah. I have heard about the toxo stuff before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We both have. Yeah, yeah. But it's in. Yeah, and I know this. This one. I'm not. Don't think it's a behavior altering one. But I have seen photos of it, of this fungus that like infects spiders, and it like grows out the head of the spider. Oh, yeah. Poor spider. Yeah, but it's gross. <laughs> yeah. I still can't get over the one that's like, I'm going to pull you into my burrow and lay my eggs near you. Yeah. And let my children feast on you. Yeah. Like, ugh. Wow. <laughs> and so gross. Um, yeah. Thanks for that suggestion, Francis. Yeah, thanks, that's... Francis. See, that kind of stuff will give me nightmares, but, you know, murderers and serial killers. It's like, meh. <laughs> yeah. Is it because that one is, like, it's nature and you can't Maybe. get away from it and you don't really... I mean, like, you understand it, but... I think it's harder for me to understand, I guess. Yeah. Rather than people. 
Yeah, yeah. People are simple in comparison to Ooh, nature. Exactly, and kind of predictable, even yes. serial killers. Um, yes. Of course, that's how they get caught. Um, yeah, but yeah, I find nature and science and stuff to be, yeah. I just not find it simple, not so simple. I just find it fascinating. Yeah, of course you do. It's not that I don't, <laughs> don't find it scary. I just find it Yeah, I find it interesting too, but yeah, a lot of the big words go over my head. <laughs> so much big words, but yeah. scientific words. Yeah. Um, mainly because I need to see them spelled out and written yeah. in front of me, which is why we'll post the link to that article so mm. that people can read it for themselves and dig further into yeah. a wiki hole. So yeah. if you have trouble reading Wikipedia because it's too scientific and the words are too long, there is a thing called Simple English Wikipedia, mm. which essentially translates those articles into words that are easier for laymen to understand. Right. Because Wikipedia articles are sometimes written in a way that um, academics yes. use as a reference. Yeah, there are. there is a lot of... Um, yeah, Wikipedia is becoming more, not so much academic, but... It's like the internet version of an encyclopedia now. Well, yeah. Like, when was the last time we knew anyone who bought an encyclopedia? True. I remember in some game shows, you'd be like, and your prize is a Britannia encyclopedia. Yeah, I used to have set a couple sets of encyclopedias. Yeah. Old, uh, the golden book ones, like the younger ones. I used to read them all the time. Yeah. And with the classic Funk and Wagnalls. Oh really? No, yeah, my parents set. had a set of Britannicas. I don't, I think they're gone now. I don't yeah. think mum and dad kept them but they had a set of Britannica and I very very occasionally would crack one open and have a look but mm. it got to the point where it was so old it wasn't oh, relevant exactly. anymore. Yeah. Like as soon as you, it's like cars, like as soon as you buy them they're not relevant anymore. Yeah but you can still use them. Yeah, true. <laughs> I guess you can still use encyclopedias too but they just become outdated. I think mm. the point I was making, trying to make with Wikipedia is it's really highly modern monitored now mm. as well and really hard to even get published on there and yeah, yeah really hard to make things um yeah speaking of francis actually now that you say that and people do edit wikipedia articles mm. it is a thing yeah. i remember francis in year eight um was having an argument with someone about whether strawberries are a fruit or a seed mm. um and they went onto wikipedia and edited it to be correct because someone had written the incorrect information. Really? Yeah. And, like, Francis, I think they got into arguments with people on Wikipedia about it, too. Wow. Yeah. So, Francis is our very own Wikipedia editor. So, is a strawberry a seed or a fruit? You might have to ask Francis. I don't know. Oh, no. <laughs> they know the answer more okay. than I do. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, alrighty. Alrighty. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you next time. That's on... another episode of... Dark and creepy things. <laughs> Yay, dark and creepy things. things. With Frank and Scout. Yeah. Yay. We'll see, see you next time. time. Bye.